Hello, yes, this is Anthony Day with the last word from the Sustainable Futures Report for 2015 on Friday the 25th of December. Merry Christmas! I hope you're not listening to this on Christmas Day. Much better on Boxing Day with a few mince pies and a brimming glass. This week, more reports from COP21, but certainly not the last word on that. An analysis of whether hamster power could be the answer to our energy needs. And what's ET short for? Kit Bennett was in Paris for COP21. In fact, he's still out of the UK. But he sent me this message. Governments and media across the world have celebrated the Paris Agreement as a way of keeping global warming below 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial levels and as a step towards the end of fossil fuels. However, this gives a false impression. Even if all the cuts in emissions planned under the Paris Agreement were carried out, global warming would be nearer 3 degrees centigrade than 1.5 degrees and this would potentially trigger further effects including positive feedback loops that are difficult to predict or control. Because the planned emissions cuts were submitted by each country on an individual voluntary basis, the Paris Agreement doesn't include legally binding targets for greenhouse gas emissions cuts. At the same time, it includes very dubious means for subcontracting emissions reduction to other countries such as CDM, the Clean Development Mechanism, a Kyoto Protocol Mechanism, to assist developing countries reducing their greenhouse gas emissions, and REDD, reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. These flexible methods are ripe for exploitation through spurious or unverifiable carbon savings in various countries. In the case of REDD, the way is also open for land grabbing and exploitation of indigenous peoples. Therefore, I think that the Paris Agreement replicates and extends the weaknesses of the Kyoto Protocol, while at the same time not including its strength, which was legally binding emissions cuts. Thanks to Kit Bennett for that. Richard Lane also went to Paris, and I caught up with him after his return. In the interview that follows, you'll hear him talk about people in India who were displaced from their land so a solar farm could be built. He mentions 3.8 thousand square metres and asks me to point out that he should have said 300 acres, which is more like 1.2 million square metres. Here's what he had to say. Well, I'm the chair of a small uh, charity which is called York Community Energy. Uh, We're looking into uh, building renewable energy uh, in and around the city of York. And I'm also, I went to Paris to represent that, to, to meet up, network, and uh, push the, the energy democracy agenda, and also to represent York Climate Action, which is uh, something that York Community Energy is, is affiliated with, and something that I'm involved with personally as well. Okay, so you weren't part of the main negotiations, but there were a, a vast number of um, organisations having their own events in Paris at the same time. That's right. There were basically four things happening around this whole COP21 process, but in the centre of it all, obviously, you have the, the blue zone, the actual negotiation area, which is surrounded by you know, the police and you know all kinds of identity checks and so on, and that's, um, that's a, it was at Le Bourget Airport, it was in a, a huge temporary tent village created out of chipboard and canvas, 
then next to that you have what they call the climate generations area, which is a, a the green zone. It's set aside for NGOs, uh, campaigners, um, academics, researchers, and uh, a lot of educational uh, events took place there, and a fair number of campaign events. And that's part of the official program. But as I say, it's much more open. Anyone can go there just to have a bag search. And, um, and there was a very, very full program of, of events, debates, talks, seminars, and so on. And then outside of the official thing, you have the, the social forum, which com- comes alongside it, which is organised entirely by NGOs. And that is sort of a far more wide-ranging look at the issues surrounding climate, climate justice development, uh, the various uh, effects and impacts of what has been done by past climate negotiations. And that's where there was a huge convergence, um, you know, tens of thousands of people uh, from all over the world coming together to talk about issues around climate change and uh, it had a, a much more lively debate and a much more lively critique of the work being done at, uh, in the main negotiations at Le Bourget. So you had tens of thousands of people even though there was a highly tense situation in Paris, there have been the attacks only a few weeks beforehand and the police were locking down the security, at least that was the impression I got from the outside, but people went anyway. Yes, absolutely. Yes, uh, it was it was very well attended. I mean, it would have been better attended. There's no doubt had that not happened. Um, and so that that was also a very very full program. There was a weekend of events in a in a sort of suburb of Paris called Montreuil, and uh, that was the the climate citizens climate on the climate sorry citizens summit on the climate. And were all these things open to anybody? Yes, there was no registration. There was no it, there was no um, qualification or anything. You just turned up, and they were all there. And, as, and it took place. It was incredibly well organised, especially considering that the, the Parisian authorities and the French government had decided to use the state of emergency to deal with climate activists who they were worried about disrupting COP twenty one, and had actually had in, had um, put uh, I think thirty of them under house arrest. So uh, an awful lot of campaigners from abroad had to go in and fill the gap. And so there was, it was more chaotic than it might have been otherwise, but even so, it was still a feat of, of organisation. There was, there was a lot in common between the two different locations. Both of them had simultaneous translations arranged, headsets, you know, um, sound systems in workshops, and, it, you know, it was a real feat of, of showing what civil society is capable of and what campaigners are capable mm. of. Mm. So what, um, what topics did you follow up? What events did you go to? Uh, the the program, as I say, was packed. On the first Saturday morning alone, there were fifty sessions just in the morning. So that there was there was a lot. Obviously, with my personal background, I focused a lot on renewable energy, energy democracy, and it was very educational, especially speaking to uh, other groups from around the developing world as to what energy democracy means to them, and the kind of uh, struggles they face, and the kind of uh, and how that relates, how that compares to the kind of struggles we face in this country. And it's interesting to see a lot of similarities as well as a lot of differences. Mm-hmm. So in particular, sort of, you know, the vested interests of large power companies which do have the ears of governments and do have uh, a lot of influence when it comes to setting policy. We, um, the kind of struggles we're facing with fracking in this country are very analogous to the struggles they're facing. Fracking, for example, you know, we are facing a lot of uh, external large infrastructure companies coming onto our land uh, with very little democratic facilities to stop them. Mm. And that is very analogous to what's happening in developing yes. countries. And that's a bit of a shock to us, a bit of a shock to our system. We're not used to that. They are. They're entirely used to that. That's, that's the way things have gone uh, for them for, you know, for, for a few generations. Um, and, and conversely as well, the other interesting anal- uh, um, similarity is that 
they really are in favour of renewable energy. Um, you know, especially the ones, obviously, that we made from the NGOs and civil society. They really see the potential of renewable energy to bring benefits to the community level. And there's a, a very wide awareness that extractive industries aren't good for you. Right. You so know. what sort of countries were these that you are? So, um, so a lot of, uh, I went to one of the Asian uh, people's movement on debt and development. So there's countries like uh, the Philippines, uh, Indonesia, Pakistan, mm-hmm. Bangladesh, mm-hmm. and, and African countries as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mauritius and um, uh, Nigeria obviously have a hell of a story, a hell of a history with the oil extraction there. Oh, yes, but yes. these stories, you know, they get out. The world is sufficiently small now that people know how this happens and people have seen the effects elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And they know that uh, these large extractive industries lead to pollution and corruption and a lot of disenfranchisement. So, yes, yes. So these uh, fringe events, were they under the umbrella of the United Nations or was there a coordinating body that, that ran everything? There was a coalition of NGOs that, that ran this that, that were based in Paris. There were things like Friends of the Earth, a thing called Alternativa, which is uh, sort of like a French kind of Greenpeace. Yeah. Um, and there was a, a group called Attack, which is uh, the kind of French equivalent of Global Justice Now, which is what used to be called the World Development Movement. Right. Uh, and there's, there was a, a big coalition of groups came together to, to plan this, the, uh, the, the, the Citizens' Conference the weekend and the week-long programme of events at uh, what was called the... Action climate, sorry, climate action zone, and yeah, and as I say, it was very well organised by and large. And did they issue statements and agreements as the main COP twenty one negotiation did? Yes, they were um, mostly done by the constituent groups, but there mm-hmm. were um, coalition agreements as well, coalition statements. Um, and the the gist of all that, the gist of the statements was that this isn't going to achieve climate justice, which is the big the big sort of term that was used, the big overarching idea is that not only do we have to tackle climate change, but we have to tackle it in a way which is fair and affords them as many people as possible, as much dignity as possible. Well, expand on that a bit. I mean, what's climate justice? What do you, what do you mean by that? Well, climate justice is the recognition of the, of the fact that it is not everyone in the world who is equally responsible for climate change, mm-hmm. and it is not everyone in the world who is equally suffering from the effects of climate, justice, uh, climate change. Right. So in the, in the West, we have a huge historical uh, backlog of, of emissions. The, most of the carbon that is in the atmosphere is, has been emitted by uh, America or the UK, Canada, Australia and China. So going back to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Exactly, yes, that's yeah. right. So China's a very much a newcomer, so its yes. actual historic debt is much smaller, uh-huh. even though it's, it's changing. It's, it's building, it's up building pretty quickly. up pretty quickly, although they're now making a a fantastically uh, smart U-turn and, and really starting to close power, uh, coal power stations and really uh, expanding their renewable power industry. Mm-hmm. And they can do that because they can turn on the sixpence because they're so centrally controlled. Yeah. But, yes, historically we have, this, we have effectively a carbon debt to the developing world. Mm-hmm. So the politicians of the developing world are saying, well, yes, therefore we should be allowed to develop, we should be allowed to pollute as well. But a lot of the citizens aren't buying that because they see that there isn't much in it for them. The extractive industries aren't generally huge job creators. They don't create good jobs. Um, in, this, in, in the West, they have, they, there is a, such a long tradition of organised labour around uh, you know, mining particularly, and oil as well, that these jobs have become well-supported, uh, well-protected jobs, and there's a, a strong culture. I mean, in Britain, obviously, it was very degraded in the 80s, but in much of Germany, there's very strong support and, and strong social 
uh, network around the mining industry still, same mm-hmm. in Poland mm-hmm. and many other countries. Um, but that doesn't exist in the developing world, and they recognise that where it has been, where, where that model has been exported to the developing world, it hasn't really worked well for the people involved, for the miners. I mean, think of South Africa, for the... Um, or it's in Central Africa for mineral extraction mm. as well. Mm. It hasn't worked well for the workers involved. It hasn't worked well for the land. It hasn't worked well for for the uh, the safety, security, and, and and cleanliness. You know that the the lack of, the land gets polluted by you know the large swathes of the Ionia Delta are absolutely uh, devastated by oil pollution, mm. and um, and they haven't seen much benefit from it. You know Nigeria, an incredibly oil rich company. It uh, actually has had had it, its access to energy has gone down in the last decade. More people, fewer people, are connected to the grid, and the grid is less reliable, um, which is a shock, a shocking thing to hear. You know that uh, between that, that in nineteen ninety nine, you know they they were generating uh, the, the total grid capacity was one thousand seven hundred fifty megawatts, and it's actually gone down. Twenty fifteen, it's now. 1,227 megawatts. You know, that, that's in Nigeria. That's in Nigeria, yeah. And yeah. that's despite you know, all that oil, all that infrastructure. And uh, they privatised the, uh, the power sector, the energy grid sector. So you know, it isn't working for them. This model is not working for them. And they mm. recognise this, and they know that there is an alternative. And there are some countries that are really leading the way, like Uruguay, which is now, as, as you probably know, I think you've covered it in a past uh, podcast, that they are uh, effectively 100% renewable energy. They are net exporters of energy. I think that's electricity, isn't it? That is electricity. I beg your pardon, sorry. 55% of all energy is renewable. 100% of electricity is renewable. They are net exporters of electricity. Yes, that's Yes, okay. Well, let's let's move on, shall we, to the actual official agreement, which was finally signed with a stroke of a hammer, uh, on Saturday, last Saturday the 12th. About a day late. About a day late, but everybody knew it was going to go overnight, I'm yes, sure. that's right. Um, well, I'll, I've made my views clear in uh, a previous podcast, but what's, what's your impression of the agreement? Um, that it was probably the best we were ever going to get. It isn't nearly enough to uh, address climate change, and it certainly doesn't even begin to address the issues of climate justice. So the, uh, it doesn't specify any particular targets, any particular cuts that need to be made by any particular countries at any particular time. There's no uh, mention of fossil fuels in the agreement at all. It doesn't say that we must stop using fossil fuels. It doesn't give a date by which we should be phasing them out. It, uh, and it doesn't certainly uh, make any recognition of the fact that the, 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 the developed countries should be liable. And this was very controversial. There's a, a, the term is loss and damage. Mm-hmm. And America did accept, and this was going back and forth during the, during the negotiations, that America did eventually accept the principle of loss and damage, provided it was stated as a sort of an abstract principle alone, and there would be no way in which reparations could be sought for it, no way that any kind of legal action could be, right. could be pursued, and right. no money that could be forthcoming from it. So there's no mechanism to set that up. But isn't there somewhere... Um £100 billion a year, which is going to be paid to the developing nations to help them adapt to climate change? Well, it's uh, the, there's the Global Climate Fund, no, sorry, the Green Climate Fund, um, which is very controversial because, as you say, it's a lot of money, but how it's being used is, is questionable and very, very uh, opaque. Um, there was a meeting in, in Zambia 
uh, earlier on this year where they finally announced that you know they had their budget of 10 billion that they had at that point um, and they, they finally got around to saying okay these are the projects we're going to fund and there was no sort of um, explanation of why they chose those ones there were some some of them were very uh, very dubious in terms of the kind of impacts that they will have locally one of the things we're seeing around these projects is that these are large sums of money, so mm-hmm. they need mm-hmm. to go to to um, companies and organisations that have the structures for dealing with those large sums of money. I mean, can you imagine giving out a billion dollars to uh, small community groups across uh, you know the Asian subcontinent, the Indian subcontinent? Sorry, no. that you know it would be a you know a coordinating effort. You know, well, what worries me is what we've seen going on at FIFA. Yes. Um, so. And- I'm, af- I'm afraid that could be replicated. Well, absolutely. It does seem to be. So that's what they're doing instead, is they're agreeing these large sums of money should go to people who can handle. So who can handle a billion dollars worth? Oh, I can, says Deutsche Bank. I can, says HSBC. No problem there. So we've got all the usual suspects. Yeah. And they're the ones receiving the money and dispersing it. And, and, and they're funding things like dams, like uh, reforesting schemes. And the actual... There is now, uh, there is a requirement for them to consult, but they... The ones that have been done in the past through the clean development mechanism have not fulfilled that. They have not done anything like the kind of consultation. They've not done anything like the kind of citizen engagement that we really need to see. So there have been um, uh, projects like a, you know, a huge solar farm in India, which uh, was built, they said, on, uh, I think it was 3.8 thousand square metres of what they called unused land. And what they meant by unused land was unowned land and actually it was very well used but the people who use it now no longer can use it and it's generated two jobs who are the security guards to make sure those people don't try to get back on the land that they used to use so there's all these kinds of questions are raised by these huge sums of money and there is no uh, transparency there is no there well no, the new agreement does introduce a requirement on them for consultation but you know these as you say these these huge international international systems are notoriously ripe for corruption. There was one project that was funded by the Zambia Talks, for example, where the it was a, a project in uh, in Peru, and the chair, no, the, the technical director of the NGO that will run the scheme sits on the Green Climate Fund board, who made the decision. Mm. So, you know that kind of thing is going to happen. That's the sort of that's the nature of these of these things, and it, and it is it just it raises all kinds of red flags. So, so yes, there is that money for the developing world. How much of it translates into things that will be of social and uh, social benefit to them as well as helping us? Because the motivation for these funds seems to be more to allow us a way to offset our continued emissions. That's that is what has been written into this agreement: is that there can be agreements between developed and developing nations yes. to achieve a net reduction between them and the, what, the work that goes on in the developing countries can count toward the reductions of the developed countries and mm-hmm. that is written down uh, in this agreement which is not something that is wholly a good thing at all. Mm, okay. Well, if we were to round everything up and summarise, first of all, are you optimistic um, as a result of what happened in Paris this month? Yes, actually I am, uh, and it's not because of what I saw at Le Bourget, it's not because of the negotiations, it's because of the, um, the, the way that I've seen information being transferred, the way that I've seen um, people coming together, civil society coming together from around the world in this kind of social forum, and just 
the way that people are getting so clued up about what needs to be done and, they, and the, the possibilities of going back and, um, and working together and explaining in our own communities and actually um, building our own solutions because this, is, this was the, um, the defiant and final line from the, the social forum and the protest, which was the fourth thing which I never got onto before, was the actual protest as well, which were some huge set-piece protests, which were um, absolutely amazing as well in, in so many other ways. Um, but the, the defiant final line is that it's up to us. You know, They aren't going to stop extracting fossil, fuel from, fossil fuels from the ground, but we know we can stop them. We know that, um, for example, you know, fracking, whether it's fracking in Lancashire, whether it's closing down coal mines, whether it's, you know, we, there are successes that have been had and that we can carry on to have bigger successes. The Keystone Pipeline, for example. You know, these things happen. Shell in the Arctic. You know, yes. these things happen because of massive public pressure. The oil industry has been crying uh, recently about, uh, oh, you know, everyone hates us. You know, we're public enemy number one. We're going to be like slave traders. Well, yes, that's a very good analogy. And... Um, yeah, and and they're vulnerable, and we can, and the social movements and citizens can have an impact, and if we, and, and the the way that I've seen people coming together and working together and planning together, has been absolutely inspiring, yeah. and I think yeah. that, uh, that there's a long way to go there, isn't there? Because although we all say the oil companies are are the villains, um, you won't but I will start my car tomorrow and it runs on petrol. And so will millions of other people in this country and hundreds of millions of people all over the world. We are where we are. It's going to take... There are alternatives, but there are not things we can implement overnight. No, absolutely. No, no, of course not. And I'm, I would never claim that we, that we would, but... <laughs> so what are you going to do next? What should we do next? Well, as you know, my focus is on energy, so I am more determined than ever to play my part in decarbonising our grid to get, to get renewable energy flowing to get uh, to, to, to we, we have a statement to make which is another defiant statement in this country which is that renewable energy can't be stopped government can't stop it it's not only up to government we will find ways of continuing to to build renewable energy to decarbonize our grid whether they like it or not mm. i'm also more resolved to um, support the uh, opposition to fracking as well because that is the front line in this country that um, that's what they're pinning all their hopes on the gas cycle power stations sorry you know what I mean, the gas power, yes. um, power stations, uh, which are going to be fed by fracked gas as well as gas from, um, from abroad. Mm. And if, if we can put the pressure on that, and we know it's been won in different countries, it's been run in places, parts of this country, and it's been won in other countries. So there are all sorts of points here that are vulnerable, and if we can change the infrastructure, you're right, and it, at an individual level that's going to be a slower process, but at the infrastructure level, which is the big deal, I mean... Changing our own individual lives is great, and we should all do it, but the big win is the structure that we all live in, and that's what needs to change, and that is, it is more susceptible to change than I think we realise. Right. So, should we all be going out to protest? And if we don't believe in protest, then what sort of things should we be doing? I, well, I, I fail to see how anyone can not believe in protest, given the... Uh, the things that we now take for granted that were achieved through protests. Well, whether right, that's... there are a lot of people who are not prepared to go and protest. Oh, well, that's, yes, well, that's fair enough. I mean, we all, you know, not everyone has the stomach for that, and that's fair enough. And I'm not naturally a, a protester. I'm not naturally a, a, a rebel. I'm, um, I'm a, a campaigner first and a, pro a protester to support that rather than a rebel at heart and, you know, who finds a cause. Um, and so, yeah, but the, what people need to do 
Well, A, support your local community energy scheme. B, support your local anti-fracking plan, your local anti-fracking campaign. C, get involved with your local politicians. Divest from fossil fuels. There's so many ways, if you, you know, whether it's a pension fund, whether it's um, so, you know, your MPs, your council's pension funds, whether any number of other investments that, that you may have or that you may have influence over, divest from fossil fuels. It's not only an ethical thing to do, it's a sensible thing to do, given that a lot of these are looking like increasingly poor investments. Right. And drive electric cars, insulate your home, oh. install solar panels. Yes, I and mean, then the changes you can make in your own life, absolutely, yes. Mm. I and mean, there's so much you can do to reduce your energy use, which is the first thing, and it's, again, something which hasn't really been addressed no. in the COP21 uh, dialogue and in the coverage of it. Yes, reduce your energy use, yes, insulate right. your own home, that's a no-brainer. You know, yeah. really, it's, there's very few insulation schemes you can do which won't pay off in the long term you know it's, right. it's worth it right so looking at the whole event is there a final thought you'd like to leave with us um that it's up to us that it that all of us can make a difference uh, it doesn't matter how big it doesn't have to be shouting at people in the streets but that it's up to all of us to to uh, deal with this and those with the greatest power have those have the greatest responsibility and we need to recognize in the west that we have vastly more power than someone who's just been thrown off the land that they used to farm their cattle on in, uh, in Pakistan. Richard Lane, thank you very much for sharing your experiences and your ideas with us. Thanks again. Thank you. Another dimension to COP21 and the climate debate. The Sustainable Futures Report is about sustainability. It's an extremely broad issue. Water, waste, population, pollution, food, resources climate change, energy. I seem to have covered energy more often than anything else, but in the UK we do have an energy problem. Here's a possible solution from New Scientist magazine. You may know that every issue has a feature called The Last Word, where people write in with their questions and other people of immense ability and ingenuity write in with answers. They collect these together and publish them as a book, and I'd like to read you a brief extract from Do Polar Bears Get Lonely, which they published in 2008. The question came from Catherine Hetherington of Aberdeen. She asked, could hamster power be an environmentally friendly answer to the impending energy crisis? How many hamsters running on wheels would it take to provide energy for a house or a factory? There were many answers. Here are the ones I like. This one is from Mike Follows of Willenhall in the West Midlands in the UK. Let's assume a hamster weighing 50 grams can run up a 30 degree slope at 2 metres per second. This corresponds to a power output of half a watt. If it delivers the same power when running in a hamster wheel, we would need 120 hamsters working flat out to light a 60 watt bulb. The average hamster probably doesn't spend more than 5% of its life running in its wheel, so already we need a brigade of 2,400 hamsters just to light our bulb. It gets worse. The average UK household consumes in excess of 80 gigajoules of energy per year. This is equivalent to a constant power consumption of about 2.5 kilowatts. 
each house would need 100,000 hamsters. Multiply this by the number of households in the UK and we would have an environmental and economic disaster. In addition, we would need to employ an army of animal behaviourists to devise Pavlovian tricks to get the hamsters onto their wheels in response to surges in demand. And, given that hamsters are nocturnal, this would force politicians and lawyers to debate animal welfare. The UK alone would need to employ everyone else in Europe to feed and care for its hamster population. Perhaps we should let humans run on treadmills. It would not produce much electricity, but we might end up with less of an obesity problem. Ben Padman from Perth in Western Australia says, According to the CIA website, the estimated global electrical energy consumption in 2003 was 15.45 trillion kilowatt hours. To produce that kind of energy in ideal conditions would require about 1,458 billion hamsters. Hamsters have an average lifespan of two and a half years, meaning that if we had switched to hamster power in 2003, we would already have more than two billion tonnes of depleted hamster and many backyard funerals. The environmental and socio-economic impact of this would be devastating. So it is my duty as a pseudo-technician to decree that this is another energy source best left to fiction. You can read the rest and many other interesting answers to many other interesting questions in the books published by New Scientist magazine. And finally, here's the question I posed at the beginning. It comes from a Christmas cracker. What's ET short for? No, what's E.T. short for? Because he's got little legs. They make him short. Oh, well, please yourselves. This is Anthony Day, the one in the Santa hat with a white beard, bringing this edition of the Sustainable Futures Report to a close. Have a happy holiday. There will be more Sustainable Futures next Friday. Cheers. See you next time.